Amen. Grab a seat. I told Kevin last night that I was going to put on my, my prophet's hat and uh, predict and prophesy the, the fact that he preached so short last week that over half the congregation would not return this Sunday. And it seems as if my uh, prophecy is absolutely correct. So instead of calling me Pastor Daniel from now on, you can call me Prophet Daniel from now on. Yes. No. Um, yeah, my name's Daniel. I think I've introduced myself to everyone who was new this morning. I think everybody else is good and regular, so I don't need to go into any other introductions. But there are a few of you that I don't see. My name's Daniel, by the way. One of the pastors here at Aletheia. We're in a series called The Advent Conspiracy. We've basically been attempting to turn Christmas upside down. Week one, we challenged you to worship fully. And in challenging you to worship fully, we looked at the story of the shepherds and the announcement of the birth of Christ. And we saw that when the announcement came to the shepherds, they set an, an amazing example for us because immediately it created movement in their heart, it created movement in their lives, and they went to worship the baby king. And along the way, there was celebration and there was praise. Not only did we see that pattern in the shepherd's life, we also saw it in Mary's life when the announcement came to her, and we also saw it in the lives of the wise men. These pagan astrologers who for over who about 600 years had been waiting on the birth of this Messiah to come from a faraway land, take this about 18-month journey in this massive caravan to come and to worship the baby king. They set a great example for us, and we followed that example in the challenge to spend less. In the challenge to spend less, we encourage you to spend less except where you should spend more. It was an encouragement and a challenge to exchange consumption for compassion this Christmas season. And last week, Kevin talked to us about giving more that we looked at the life of Jesus and we saw the pattern of Jesus and how Jesus gave of his hands when he touched the leper who needed physical healing from his disease. We saw Jesus give words of the gospel to the woman caught in adultery. We saw Jesus give his time to, um, to Zacchaeus when he went into his home. We saw Jesus give his heart when he wept with his friends over the death of Lazarus. And we saw Jesus give his life upon the cross for your sin and for my sin. And today we wrap up the Advent conspiracy with a message entitled, Love All. Now, before we just blow past these words, like kids blowing through the wrapping paper and the boxes to get to the gift on Christmas morning, we're going to try to be like children on the days leading up to Christmas, where there are gifts under the tree, and you go and you see the gift. And when mom and dad aren't around, you go and you pick up the gift, and you shake the gift, and you listen, and you do anything you can to try and figure out the gift. Because you are so encouraged and you, you can't, the anticipation is overwhelming you that you are constantly seeking and searching it out to figure out what is inside. And so that's what we're going to try and do with the phrase, love all. 
Let's just imagine for a moment we started a campaign today, the Love All campaign. And for the next semester, our campaign was to be on campus every day, to be in this community every day, saying that we are trying to rally the, the city of Gainesville, the community of Gainesville, to start a worldwide movement to love all. I don't think it would be that hard of a campaign to get started. I think on the surface, just mentioning those words to people, you could find people readily in agreement with that is something that we should do, that what the world needs is for us to just love everyone. And we're hearing messages like this on all kinds of platforms, social media platforms, on, on the news. This is an idea that we all generally agree with until we actually define what love is. Because if we took some time to poll people that if I wasn't to encourage you to love all, what does this word mean to you? What does it mean to love all? I think gen the general definition that everyone would settle on and, and can feel in our world today is the call to be kind to one another. That when we are calling people to love one another, what people are actually asking us to do is to be kind to one another, to be nice to one another, to generally accept people for who they are. And as a general rule, I would say that is something we should do. We should be kind to one another. But does being kind to one another necessarily mean that we are loving one another? So if we are going to embrace this call to love all, then we need to go to the actual source of love itself. We need to go to God himself, for God is the source of love. And Josh, I just want to congratulate you on picking out the scripture this morning because it shows that we are spiritually in sync together with the Holy Spirit this morning. That of all the passages and all the scripture, you would pick the passage that I had picked for the main part of our text today. So good job being led by the Spirit this week, my son. <laughs> All right, so for the third time, we're going to read 1 John 4, 7-11 through 11 this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I want you to notice four things about this passage. The first thing I want you to notice is the call to love. John, the disciple who was close to Jesus, in writing this letter to the church, calls the church to love. But not only does he call us to love, he reveals to us the source of love. And I think it is very important 
that you understand this passage. I think if there is a passage that you could most readily use to have a conversation with someone in the world today, I actually think it's these verses because we readily hear from people in society, in everyday language, even those we might most vehemently disagree with theologically, that God is love. But I think it's very important that we understand the context of which the Bible speaks that God is love. Because yes, God is the source of love, but the framework for this love is indelibly rooted in concrete into the gospel message, into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because he tells us in verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So if you ever hear someone say that God is love, it is a great opportunity to say, yes, I 100% absolutely agree with you. But what do you mean when God, when, when, when you say that? Do you understand the context by which you are saying that and repeating the Scripture? Because the Scripture is crystal clear that to say that God is love, it must be directly connected to and attached to the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is on that cross where Jesus dies for the sin of mankind. It is where Jesus exchanges his righteousness for our sin. It is where Jesus takes on the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be completely reconciled to him. So if you hear someone that you disagree with because of lifestyle choices or theological differences, but yet they espouse God as love, you have an incredible entry point to have a conversation about the gospel if you would just talk to them about the context and have them read these verses in the context of God is love. And so we see the call to love, we see the source of love, we see the framework of love, and then we see why we love. Because God has died for us, because Jesus has taken our sin, that we no longer have to seek to be justified in God's eyes through our own goods because now we are in a permanently propitious state before God. Now, if you don't know what this word propitiation means, I'm going to give you a very simple, clear example because I, I can almost guarantee every person in this room has done this. At some point in time as a child, as the calendar rolled along, you realized that Christmas was coming. Now, for some of you who are a little overly eager about Christmas, this may have started in July for you. For some of you, it may be like me and you always wait to the post-Thanksgiving. But at some point as a child, you realize Christmas is coming. There are a slew of gifts I desire to receive this Christmas. My best chance of getting these gifts is to be as good as possible, to be as propitious as possible, to make my parents as propitious as possible toward me. 
It basically means to make one favorable, to do things, to get something in return. John says, you don't have to do anything ever again to make yourself favorable in God's eyes. For you have now been made permanently favorable solely by the love of God, by the cross of Christ on your behalf. Because of your faith in him, you have now been made permanently propitious. You are now a child of God. And let me tell you, as a father of four children who sometimes drive me absolutely insane to where I feel like I am losing my mind, that sometimes I express anger in ways I did not know existed inside of me, they, even in the midst of my unadulterated rage, whatever, just flowing out of me, I still like them. I am still permanently propitious towards them because they are my children. And though they might make me insane, though they might exhaust every emotional capacity that I have, I still like them a whole lot. And let me just tell you, that's an amazing feeling to have someone about someone, to go, how can you make me so insane yet I still love you so much? Because anybody else in my life who made me this crazy, I would just remove from my life. But yet I keep coming back to you over and over and over and loving you and, and giving myself to you and serving you and taking you to school and taking you to basketball games and feeding you and clothing you and allowing you to live in my homes and all the benefits they get of being my child. And one day as a parent, you will understand this and it will blow your mind and you're going to go, that's how God feels about me. Even when I am stinker rotten, even when I am per purposely rebellious, even, though when I, even when I pitch a temper tantrum, he still loves me and likes me a whole lot, way more than I deserve because of my attitudes and my actions. That's what it means that God is now propitious toward us as his children. So we see the call to love, the source of love, the framework of love, and why we love. And I want you to see, this is something that is repeated over and over in the Scriptures. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul, writing to the church, says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So see, it's rooted in your identity. This call to love is always rooted in your identity as beloved children. And what's the call? To walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here we see the call to love. Here we see the framework of love. Here we see the source of love, Jesus Christ. And we see why we love. This is a pattern that is repeated over and over in Scripture to us. We are to give ourselves up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God by walking in love toward God and toward one another. This is why Romans 12.1 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now realize, Paul has just given you 11 chapters of theological 
gospel, all right? Explaining the gospel in this great expositional manner and the great turn in the book of Romans from the first 11 chapters is this big therefore in chapter 12 where everything turns and the first thing he says in light of this entire gospel, this framework of love, the source of love, why we love is this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we do this all rooted in our identity of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. So we've seen this big framework and this call to love, but now the question as we seek to love all is who do we love? And for this, we turn to one of the easiest passages to remember and to recall in all of Scripture, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Now, what I think we should pay particular attention to in this passage initially is that most often when Jesus is asked a question, if you notice, he never gives an answer. What's Jesus' favorite thing to do when he's asked a question in Scripture? Ask another question. Oh, might we learn something from Jesus on message boards and the Internet and Facebook and forums and all these places if we would just learn to ask more questions rather than make responses. People are much more willing to engage with you in a conversation if you'll ask them questions. But yet, for this one, Jesus didn't wait, did he? Immediately, when they asked the question, when the Pharisee, when the teacher asked the question, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is summing up the law and the prophets, but he's also pointing out the Ten Commandments. Now, the first, what I'm about to tell you, the first time I heard this, I thought this was like the most mind-blowing, revolutionary thing I had ever heard. Now, maybe you all know this, maybe you've all been taught this, but for me, it was just absolutely mind-blowing that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are in a vertical fashion. Okay, you shall have no other gods before me, don't make an idol, a carved image, don't say the name of the Lord in vain, and keep the Sabbath holy. All of those are in a vertical direction in your worship of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the next six are on a horizontal plane toward one another. Now, if you take a vertical plane and a horizontal plane, what do you get? A cross, right? And so these next six commandments, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder, honor your father and mother, Which one am I missing? Adultery. Don't commit adultery yet. Don't do that one. That's really bad too. Um, uh, Those are all of a horizontal nature. So when we look at the commandments of God, when we look at the commandments in the Old Testament and the commandments in the New Testament, 
there is a, some will have a directly vertical nature, some will have a more horizontal nature in how we express these commandments toward one another. So the who that we are to love is God and your neighbor. So how do we do this? In this framework of love, in this call to love, in who to love, how do we love God? Well, we do this by learning his commandments and being obedient to them. You know, this is something I think we're really afraid of in today's society is to say that we, that we love the commandments of God. That we love God's instruction. That we love God's rules. We love the boundaries that he sets for us. Let me just say, if you don't love the commandments of God, if you don't love his boundaries, you, 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 you are missing out on one of the greatest joys and blessings that God can give to you as a human being. Because God has given you his commandments, his boundaries, his instruction for the purpose of putting your foot on solid ground. See, everyone else in the world that doesn't live according to the commandments of God, that they're basically running on sand. They're basically running even in quicksand because they're trying to get somewhere. But, but yet God says, I am giving you, and just, and just go and read the way David talks about the commandments. I mean, David was incredibly in love with the law of God. I mean, this dude could not stop talking about how much he loved God's law, how much he loved God's instruction, how much he loved God's precepts. Go read Psalm 19 or Psalm 119, all right? And David is just head over heels in love with the law of God. Why? Because it provided a firm footing for his feet. It made running the race so much more pleasant and joyful. This morning, when I was out running six miles in 45 degrees of glorious weather, I was so appreciative for the concrete and the sidewalk that allowed me to run every single step, hating it every moment as I was going, all right? But I'm just saying, I would have much rather, I was glad to run it on concrete much rather than mud and sand. It made it much more easy and much more pleasant. And, and, and let me just say, and even sometimes we, we want to veer away from, the, from what we would say is the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. But let's just let me tell you, I've been doing some, I've read, I've read through Deuteronomy twice in the last couple of weeks. And you read through God's instruction to Israel and there is so much wisdom to be gained because, you know, God at one point wrote a constitution for a nation of how they should live. I know there's a lot of ways that we're trying to figure out how this world works, but I do know one thing. God penned a constitution for a people. There is a lot of wisdom to be gained to see the heart and the nature and the mind of God of how we should live from that. And what the New Testament commands us to do, they are deriving from the Old Testament law and God's standard of holiness and righteousness. Now, Jesus has fulfilled many of the things of the 613 commandments, 
but yet many of them are still in play for us today. We should not be so quick to dismiss the law of God as found in the Old Testament. Because God found it in his own wisdom and love to be the constitution for his chosen people, Israel. But look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 21. Much right after this call to be imitators of God and to walk in love, he gives these statements. Some we should avoid and some we should proactively pursue. To the church, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Now, let me just point out, he didn't say you were in the darkness. He said you are darkness. But now you are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Maybe you find yourself this morning struggling with a perpetual sin, one that was in this list, one that was not in this list, that you are trying to kick the habit of that sin. And you might be asking yourself, I keep praying, I keep asking, God does not seem to be delivering me from this sin. But let me ask you this, are you doing what you need yourself to be delivered from this sin? Because so often in our lives, we find ourselves in a perpetual, habitual state of sin, but yet we don't take proactive steps to remove that sin, right? You can't just uh, break a bad habit and not think something else is going to fill its place. We, we know that nature abhors a vacuum, right? So 
We want these things removed from our life. And so, so often we as Christians try to like, all right, I need to stop this sin. 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 But let me just say, it's just not as easy as stopping the sin if you don't fill it in with something that is sanctifying, with something that is righteous, with something that is good. And so in areas where you may be struggling with sin, the question is, what are you doing to fill it with righteousness? Because see, it's kind of hard to be sexually immoral when you're singing psalms and songs and hymns and praises to God. I don't know of too many people committing adultery in the midst of singing praise and worship music. Now, I'm not saying if you are a philanderer and adulterer that just singing praise music is going to fix it all, right? But it's the idea of having your mind and your heart concentrated on a place. So often, we people are addicted to certain things on their phones. But what if they were actually got away from their phone? What if they left their phone behind? What if they actually left the crack at home when they went out into the world, right? What if they proactively went and just spent time with other brothers and sisters rather than trying to do it online and through this virtual device and said, I'm going to sit this aside for five hours and I'm going to go spend time in community with other believers. It's hard to walk in deliberate, secretive sin when you're in the community of believers. Let me just say this to you. Look at your life, and would you find that most of your sin is committed alone in the dark or in the company of other people? One of the greatest ways you can overcome sin in your life is to actually spend more time with believers and less time alone. Do not be fooled into the fact that your phone, our phones, so often draw us away to isolation and it is there that we fall into sin from the things on our screen. Because it is when we are away from the body of Christ, away from the children of light, that the darkness has an incredible opportunity to perpetuate itself and penetrate itself into our hearts, into our minds, and to cause us to fall into this sin. What we need is more community around the children of light, not less. So much of our sin could be overcome if we would, one, spend time with the body of Christ, and number two, in those times when we were alone, if we were intentional to be in God's Word or to be singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs rather than Netflix or Hulu or YouTube or certain songs on Spotify or Apple Music that aren't glorifying to God, if we would battle those things with righteousness and holiness, I think we would see much greater evidence of sanctification and the overcoming sin and temptation in our lives. Again, all, all, you know, people are people, and we've been dealing with this for years, right? Paul's instruction is just as applicable to us 2,000 years later with a smartphone in our hand, as it was to those living in Rome trying to figure out how to honor Jesus in light of 
people wanted him to confess that Caesar was Lord. There is no different. It's all applicable. So we love God by singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God. This has been one of the most challenging things for me over the last few months. My spiritual mentor challenges me with this every week that we talk. Are you giving thanks to God for the people, pressures, and problems in your life? Because if you are, you recognize that God is sovereign and he has sovereignly brought every person, every pressure, and every problem into your life. And if your first reaction is to be thankful rather than complain, you will see growth in your life. And let me tell you, this is a horrible thing to try and do. Just just this week, try to be thankful for every bad thing that happens. Say, God, thank you for bringing this person into my life. Thank you for that person making me miss that red light. Thank you for that person who caused me to be late. Thank you for that person who was incompetent on the phone, teaching me to be patient and self-control. Thank you for that family member that I'm about to deal with at Christmas, right? Do you truly believe that God has put every one of these situations in your life to make you more like Jesus? If so, you will be thankful. If not, you will grow bitter and angry and you will say, why God? Why not just eliminate this problem? But is God not actually using the people, pressures, and problems in our lives to make us more like him? Remember, his highest goal, Romans 8.25, is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so we look at this vertical axis of loving God by obeying him and keeping his commandments. But more specifically, the horizontal component in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Now remember, you are already in this propitious state. You are a child of God. But as a child of God, in the same way that you seek to please your parents, we should seek to please God. And one of the most, the strongest and clearest commandments is that we are to love the brothers and sisters. And that is specifically inside of the body of Christ, inside of the local church. But I want to point out to, to you something. It's a phrase that, that I really like. I just like how it sounds for some reason. It's called moral proximity. And if no one's ever explained this to you, this is an, the ethic that we find in Scripture of who is our neighbor, right? Because we asked that. That, that's, that was a fair question that the Pharisee asked Jesus. And it's one that we have to also ask because we have to ask who is our neighbor. And Scripture has outlined it for us who we are most responsible to. So if you will look at these concentric circles up here, the first and foremost uh, place that we are to place our love and our affection and our obedience and our service is toward God himself. But moving on from that, the next greatest responsibility I bear is to my family. Yes, I bear some burden and responsibility for you, but first and foremost, I am to love, serve, and protect my wife and my children. This is why Paul says incredibly strongly to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. If you don't think it is imperative that you love, support, and provide the people in your family and come alongside them, Paul says to you, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's kind of like the Jesus way of saying worse than a tax collector and a sinner that we see in the gospel. It is a, a, a grand imperative that we love family well. They are your first priority outside of God. Secondly would be that of the church. And this would be part of the challenge for you in this year and because we conclude into the new year. Are you loving the church the way you're supposed to? Are you involved in the church? Are you coming alongside of the church? Are you involved in the church loving one another to the degree that God has commanded you in Scripture and how we are to love one another? For that is what John was talking about. That is the love one another of 1 John chapter 3. And then you have your neighbor. I usually refer to the neighbor as your organic spheres of influence. Who are the people that you are bumping into every day? That may be in your subdivision. That may be in your apartment complex, your townhome complex, your condo. It may be on the bus. It may be at your workplace. But you have a responsibility to live in and, and move towards them in love. And then outside of that, we have the vulnerable and the oppressed, the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, these phrases we hear repeatedly in Scripture. But even with that, there's some moral proximity that we as a church are more responsible for the vulnerable and oppressed here in Gainesville than we are all the way in Africa. Because they are closer to us. And we have a responsibility to love people according 
to these concentric circles that God has laid out in Scripture for us. And so in examining any of these, can you say your life is fitting this pattern? Do you see any weaknesses in your life to where like, hmm, I'm doing good in the church part, but I kind of avoid family because they get on my nerves. Or, hey, I'm doing good on the family and church part, but man, vulnerable and oppressed people, they are really difficult to deal with. They got lots of trauma and lots of issues and lots of baggage, and I like my, 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 my life nice, neat, and clean, and I got enough struggles and problems. I don't need to bring, in, bring any more issues and struggles and problems into my life. So that one's the furthest out, so we'll just let that one remain. I'll just tell Jesus, hey, I got the first few right, okay? You good with that, Jesus? And he's going to say, oh, no, I kind of told you to do them all, right? And that's kind of how it goes. And again, this doesn't change our status. It doesn't change God being propitious toward us. But these are the areas that we should live and move and work in. Now, I will just say, if you strive to do this, if you strive to love family, love church well, neighbor well, vulnerable and oppressed, eventually someone in one of those four circles They are going to do their best to get on your nerves in some way, shape, or form, intentionally or unintentionally, and they are going to become your enemy, all right? Uh, And it could be, uh, uh, you know, on a small scale or a really big scale. And you may have experienced this in your family get-togethers, Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays and reunions and all those those places. Um, And if not, it's coming. All right, um, it worked. Uh, it, it, it always worked preaching better to an older congregation in Seattle because I, said, I always, you know, who was crazy Uncle Larry, and uh, and they would uh, and people were like, oh, we don't have a crazy Uncle Larry in my house, and I would say, oh, well, that means it's you. All right, but basically, if you don't, everybody has one, and if you don't see one, then you're the one. Okay, and so you you need to know that's how your family feels about you. So, but anyway. There, there's, there, there will be someone along the way who makes themselves your enemy in, in, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your church. You know, this, if you ever wonder, why does the Bible talk so much about loving one another in the church? Because one of these days, would you really get involved in the church? And you really start rubbing shoulders with people in the church? And you really get into the dirt of people's lives? You are going to find out just how messy they are and just how messy you are. And one day there is going to be a lot of tension and conflict between you and those people. And what most people do today is treat their relationships like disposable razors. I got a few uses out of you, and as soon as I'm done with you, I'll just go throw you in the garbage and I'll go buy another one. Guess what? Jesus does not let you get off the hook that easy. He says, no, you get in there and you love. Even when it hurts. Especially when it hurts. Because let me just tell you, it ain't love till it hurts. It's like until it hurts. Once it hurts, and then you keep stepping forward, now you know you've moved into the realm of love. And the older you get, you will experience this more and more. And that's why I think it's so pointed and I, I, that Jesus says these words in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6. Hey, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now just notice what Jesus has said here. Doing things for people who are good to you and nice to you is of no credit to your account whatsoever. You loving people who love you, that doesn't get you jewels and crowns and bigger house in the kingdom, right? You don't, you don't get credit for that. Where do you get credit for? Look at what he says. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful, us included. He is kind to the evil, us included. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Here's the deal, church. That kind of love that God models and requires is not natural. It's not easy. Jesus says, look, even the worst people in the world love those who love them. You are called to love the unlovable because in you Christ loved the unlovable. So this year as you step into these family situations over the next few weeks, some of which are going to be very difficult. Take these words to heart. How can you love these people well who have made themselves your enemy, even though you are doing your best? How can you still step toward them and walk toward them in love? This is the conclusion of the Advent series. This is the conclusion of the Advent conspiracy. Though I could expound for days, and though I tried to balance out the average of time this week with, with Kevin's shorter message last week, didn't want you all to feel like you were getting shortchanged as you move into Christmas. This is what the Advent conspiracy boils down to. It's really striving to love people, to love everyone under the model of the way Christ loved us. This is why we're called to be imitators of God and to walk in love and offer ourselves as a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God by offering ourselves as spiritual sacrifices. And I get it. You know, the, the, the biggest problem with the living sacrifice is that it wants to get up off the altar and that's what we are. And when it hurts, we want to move away from it. And many times Christ wants us to move into it. So just let me encourage you this holiday season, as because I won't see any of you again until after Christmas, move toward the people in your life by striving to love them in ways, expecting nothing in return. And I can almost promise whether God repairs or restores that relationship, 
you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Because in order to, in order to love this way, you're going to have to be on your hands and on your knees and on your face saying, God, help me love them the way you have called me to love them. Because right now, I don't have it in my flesh. And it can only be stirred up by the power of your Spirit. So do in me what I am not capable of doing myself. Help me to love all the way you expect me to love the people you have put in my life, the people you have sovereignly placed. For your word declares in Acts 17, 26, God has put all men at all places at all times. There is no one in your life that is there by mistake. Every single person in every single situation is there from the hand of a sovereign God who loves you and has died for you and who calls you his own. And so may we walk in courage and in faith this season as we seek to love all the way Christ loved us. I'll go ahead and invite the band uh, back up. And so let's just take a couple moments. Let's take a few minutes just before we come up to communion. And let's just respond to what we've, we've said. Because it's great that you're here. I am so glad, thrilled, and overjoyed that you are here this morning. But it would be sad if you came here to sit under the teaching of God's word and did not respond to God's word. And you may not have liked a single word that I said today. But I read a lot of scripture. I at least hope you can appreciate the words of Scripture and that you would respond to the words of Paul, to the words of John, to the words of Jesus that call us to love. So ask for insight, ask for strength to love those um, that might be difficult to love this holiday season.